ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Todd Nordstrom. Many of you may not know the name Todd Nordstrom, but there's close to a 100% chance you've read one of his books. With a current total of 12 New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Amazon.com bestsellers under his belt, Todd is a master storyteller and a student of how great leaders use storytelling as part of their leadership. In this episode, Todd shares the one story that forever changed the trajectory of his career and likely his life. We also dive into why the standard resume is a horrible storytelling representation of an individual and some ideas of what you can do to stand out from the crowd. Todd also shares a simple framework for storytelling and how you can adopt this framework and use it to your benefit. Todd is a great conversationalist and someone I could talk to for hours on end. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode featuring Todd Nordstrom. Well, Todd, good morning. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time out. And uh, it'll be fun to spend the next, uh, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes with you talking about, well, wherever our hearts and minds take us. So thanks so much. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it, Brian. So... You know, where I want to start is this concept of ghostwriting. And I'm going to go Mm -hmm. out on a limb and guess that as you were growing up, uh, you didn't lay down uh, at night, put your head on the pillow and think to yourself, when I grow (laughs) up, I'm going to be a ghostwriter. From your perspective, in your words, what is this ghostwriting thing all about? What is it meant to you? Uh, You're right. When I was a kid, I, I, I did not. Um, come home and say, I want to be a ghostwriter. And in <laughs> fact, um, I I don't even know if I specifically said I wanted to be a writer. Um, um, but here's the irony is, is that, you know, what I did know as a child was that I was, I was big into stories. Um, I liked to write them. I liked to tell them. I liked to read them. Um, but what is it? What is it? What, what can I do with that? Um, you know, I, I couldn't go around to my aunts and uncles when they said, what do you want to be when you grow up and say, I want to be a storyteller. You know, the storyteller is a, is an old man wearing a, a robe sitting on a rock in the middle of the desert. <laughs> you, you can't be that. <laughs> and, and so, um, you're right. I, I didn't start off that way. However, I was always intrigued by the story, the setup, all of this stuff. And so no matter what I did, whether it be a, a class I was taking in school or what have you, this the story was the portion that always drew me in. As far as becoming the ghost, the guy behind the scenes, um, I think the, you know that comes from the intrigue of being the storyteller because it wasn't it wasn't about you know exposing necessarily my story or even creating a, a fictional story. There, there's a, there's a lot of, of learning and there's a lot of, you know, listening and a lot of questions and a lot of interviews and stuff and intriguing little aspects when you, when you become a ghost or a, a storyteller of, you know, even if it did have my name on it, um, just to understand a concept and say, okay, now it's my job to communicate this to an audience. Um, so I need to get all the details of the story because I'm only going to give you a sliver, you know, of, of someone's certain story or a company's certain story or what have you. So as you've uh, really dug into this uh, way of life of being a storyteller, is there a particular model or some framework that you've uncovered, whether it's yours or uh, borrowing from someone else's that has really helped you in telling these stories? You know, I would have to answer first. Yes. And, and no, um, the, the, uh, 
for a long time, you know, I would have people ask me how how I wrote, you know, how 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 well, we want to know your model. And I personally don't have a model. However, there is a model that that I have thought about at least for many many years. And and it's a it's um it's called uh Freytag's pyramid. Gustav Freytag was a playwright and um um storyteller um back in the day and and he was curious as to why some stories resonate with people while others just seem to fall flat. I mean, if you think about some of the conversations you have, you're telling many stories throughout your day. People ask you questions. What happened with this project? What happened with this person? What happened with whatever? And you're storytelling. Even though you're re reciting factual information a lot of the time, um, you're still framing a story. And Freytag was wondering, well, okay, here's this guy named William Shakespeare whose stories live on and on and on. In fact, a lot of uh, people in Hollywood say that almost all movies are based on a framework of, of Shakespeare's stories. So Freytag studied William Shakespeare's work, and what he found was something that looked what, what they call Freytag's pyramid. Um, and I think it looks more like a, uh, like a heart monitor pulse. Like an EKG sort of thing? A, yeah, you start out with a flat line, and this is just, you know, what we would consider this is, this is every day. And, and this is where you start. Um, and all of a sudden, something happens. And, and, it, and it incites an incident or a situation or a hurdle or whatever that and, and if you think about like all the movies you've seen recently this is how they go almost all of them actually um and then all of a sudden there's rising action so you're climbing up to this point um the complication is getting more and more and more until you finally reach a climax and that's when it you know you start to come down falling action the other side um, the situation is being reversed, it's being solved, it's being uh, cleared up, and then you have this resolution, which, you know, like in a, in a Disney movie would be the happily ever after. Um, and, I, and I think that this Freytag's Pyramid is the basis where you look at most of, of the stories we, you know, see in, in movies and, and, and books today. Um, not all are like that. For example, Forrest Gump um, was not one, you know, one spike to a climax and then this resolution and then it's over. It was, in fact, a, a movie based on a bunch of spikes, yeah. a bunch of little situations that, that ended up becoming a man's life. And, and I think that Forrest Gump's model is more realistic to our lives and the stories we tell you know, in business and going forward than the actual, the average Hollywood movie, because I don't think that happily ever after actually exists. And I, and I don't mean that to sound negative. I mean, that is if you think about that, that uh, heart monitor after the falling action, after we find resolution, after we, you know, come back to that place where Disney would say, and everyone lived happily ever after, I don't think we sink to the same level where we started. There's something in each story, in each one of us, that changes us to where maybe we actually fall lower. Maybe we're sadder ever after, but maybe we're happier ever after. Mm. But I don't think happily, meaning going back to that same place we started, is actually realistic. We, we change. So a new, a new bar is set of yeah. some sorts, a new, uh, exactly. a, a new base starting place. Yeah. Mm. Because everything is an experience and, and we take something from it, you know? So of all the story, and you've written countless stories, you probably, I'm sure you've lost track between the articles, the books, you know, as you think about uh, the stories that you've been telling, at least over the last handful of years, stories about appreciation, stories about great work, stories about people accomplishing amazing things in light of uh, unbelievable obstacles. Um, uh, your inspiration for continuing to tell these stories, where does it come from? Like, what is it that this is, this is your chosen path right now? 
I, th- I think it's the people, um, you know, and, and I've been surprised through life where, and, and, and I've been blessed to, to, to hang out and interview and, and, um, some, some really high, high profile people, um, where I get really excited going, this person has, you know, I know what they've done going in and I think this is going to be awesome. But what, what really surprises me is the, is the people that I don't expect a lot from. Those are the people that, that often give us the stories with the, with the biggest lessons or where you just, if you really sit and talk to people and you really say, I want to know your story. I want to know your, your rising action and your climax and your, and your falling action and and where that, where that put you in that, you know, in that pyramid or how it changed everything for you. That's where you get some of the juiciest stuff. And so I, I think it's the, um, I, I don't know, this may sound absolutely cheesy, but it's the, the never ending search to say, tell me a good story and, and, and looking for that, those stories from everyone, not necessarily even somebody that I, that I've worked with or somebody I ghosted for or what, whatever. It's the stories of just, just people. I mean, I, I, I don't, I think all of us are far more fascinating than we would ever know. If, if we look at our stories and, and our situations and, and how we deal with, you know, uh, um, a challenge or a hurdle or whatever. Um, there's so much that we can learn from each other. So speaking of stories, uh, mm-hmm. you've obviously been writing stories about other people, uh, for a long, long time. Yeah. Yet I remember you telling me a story. This is probably 15, 20 years ago that the story occurred where you were a contractor working on a project, uh, in the Utah high desert. <laughs> And, uh, this story is, is etched in my memory. And it's, it, I, I think at least as a, as the listener of the story, when you told it to me many, many years ago, probably had a pretty profound impact on what your career and, and your life has, uh, has resulted in and, and continues to. So maybe you can share a little bit about the impact of that story. Cause it's a fascinating one. I know our listeners would appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and that, that, what you're talking about, I always put the smile on my face. Um, and it did have a, a huge impact on, on where, uh, where my career has went, um, many, many years ago. In fact, probably at this point, it's, it's closer to 20 years ago. Um, I was working as a, as a writer, um, both, uh, uh in the marketing sense and in a technical sense for, a, for an agency, um, in the, uh, in, in Idaho. And I, I was assigned to a project that I had to go on, take a bus every morning into the high desert out to a radioactive waste disposal plant. Sounds sexy. And my job. <laughs> what that? <laughs> it sounds sexy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> Nothing like anyway. getting up every day going to a radioactive waste plant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and even sexier was my job description was I was writing, I was writing driving directions for truck drivers to drive uh, high level radioactive waste from Idaho into a storage facility in uh, Nevada. Mm. And it was, I mean, it's tedious, tedious stuff, even though it's not very detailed tedious meaning the you know driver may not drive you know exceed the 35 mile per hour blah 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 and so it was for me a creative guy that loves to tell stories and and loves to dig into the the meat and the emotion and the it was the worst thing ever i i mean i i was miserable so i'd wake up every morning at four i'd have to you know get on a bus in the cold winter of idaho and I'd have to ride this bus an hour and a half up up to the high desert to where I would sit in a basically a, a heated pole building and and write these driving directions. And uh, um, anyway, I would get on this bus every morning and and uh, and and then come home every night. And they were long 
long days. We would work uh, 10-hour shifts, and so you add an hour and a half, you know, in the morning and an hour and a half at night after the 10 hours of, of writing these directions. And, and it, it was a, it was just – I wasn't happy, let's put it that way. Anyway, uh, on the way home, um, you know, a lot of the workers that would go up there would love to chit-chat. And, and I personally was more like, I just, I just want to take a nap. <laughs> and I happened to notice that that no one would sit next to this older gentleman at the front of the bus. And so I would get on the bus every day and I would look around and I'd see all these friendly faces. And I'd think, I don't want to sit next to the friendly faces because they want to chit chat. I want to sit next to the grumpy guy at the front of the bus because he won't say a word. <laughs> so day in and day out, I would sit next to this older guy and guess what? I was right. This guy would not say a word. Week after week, month after month went by. I sat next to this guy every single day on the bus. And every single day, he said nothing. And it was awesome. So one day, I get on the bus. It's a Thursday, the end of my work week, because we worked four hours or four uh, work days. Um, I get on the bus. I pull out my travel pillow. I wrap it around my neck. I settle into my seat, and the next thing I know is his hand rises right in front of my face. His hand is holding a fistful of bus tickets to ride that exact same bus. And I turn and look at him, and I say, what's this? And I realize I've never said a word to this man. Right. And he said, these are for you. These are for you. I said, oh. Wow, why? And he said, it was my last day today. And I said, really? I said, you're retiring? And he said, yep, 33 years. So we went on to talk, and I asked him questions, and I realized that the grumpy old man was actually very pleasant. He told me about his job. He told me about his family. He told me about the vacations he's taken. He's, and he told me about how he had sat and waited for the day and all the things he was going to do when he was retired and he no longer had to drive up to that heated pole building in the high desert of Idaho and I was happy for him and all of a sudden he said you know he was an engineer by the way he said I, I've done the math and I said yeah and he said I've added up the amount of time over 30 plus years that I've ridden on this bus. And it equates to three, three and a half years of my life. On a bus. On a bus. Speechless, talking to no one. And there I sit as a young guy holding a fistful of tickets, <laughs> looking at my future. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, I went into to work the next Monday morning and I said, I quit. I'm not going to spend three and a half years on a bus. I won't do it. Oh. I don't like the, what I was doing anyway. And of course, my boss, my boss, who was wonderful, said, wow, there's no way I'm going to send you off to do that. We're going we're gonna to find a different uh, different thing for you to do because she completely agreed. and and uh, And it did impact every every job and every project I had after that because yes you know you can take the approach in life of saying you know you gotta you gotta pay your bills you got you gotta have a job you gotta do what's necessary but there also comes points where you once those those initial needs are taken care of you gotta look at your options and say hey I I, I can't do this and I don't want to spend three and a half years of my entire life riding a bus. Mind you, this was before smartphones and and whatnot. We couldn't play words with friends while we rode the bus sure. or what have you. Sure. But uh, yeah, it's it's it it is it is a story. It's a story I've told a lot of people, and and um and it it, it is a story that, that truly impacted my life. But it's also a story, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't expect from him this man, this grumpy man, a story that would change my life. And now 
he doesn't realize it either, but that story has, has been, you know, written in Forbes and, and whatnot. And so there, there are the stories like that, that nobody finds, assumes they're of value until they're repeated to someone else. Um, and that's exactly what I was talking about. An unlikely person with a story that probably will Im- impact and already has impacted a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the impact it had on you is just absolutely massive. Um, you know, very much a, a pivotal story in, in your life, uh, without question. And where would you be had that had you not been on the bus that day with him and him handing you a stack of bus tickets? I mean, who knows? Maybe you'd still I, be, I might on, still that be bus. on the bus, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've worked with some unbelievable uh, individuals throughout the course of your career from that bus time uh, moving forward. You know, I'm really curious and transitioning here a little bit. Um, the questions that you get asked most often, I know there are just countless people uh, who have great stories, who have great content that they want to share. They may not be a writer themselves, but they're a, a, certainly a subject matter expert. So when when you are being approached by someone who ron- wants to write a book, uh, what are some mm-hmm. of the questions that you are asked most often as they're uh, doing their research to determine whether or not you're going to be the right ghost writer, or right co-author, partner for them in telling their story? Well, I th- you know, here's the thing that it, whether or not somebody is, is, is actually, you know, trying to, you know, work with me, I, I think I, I get approached all the time, Brian, and have throughout the years. And, and I always welcome um, someone who says, I have an idea or a philosophy or a curriculum or what have you. And I was wondering if it was a book or I have a story that I, that I want to tell because everyone does. And I truly believe everyone has a story. Um, Do I think that every philosophy and every story should be turned into a book? No. Um, I think that a lot should be turned into um, articles or just, things that people hang on to, to where um, they they can pass along to their children, little incidents of learning. Um, Questions that get asked, I think, are a matter of, for the most part, confidence. And I say this not, uh, I don't want to sound fatherly or, or, or philosophical, but I think a lot of people approach and they basically want my opinion as to, to, to pat them on the back and say, your story has value or your philosophy or or ways have value. And I think that's really interesting. Um, Instead of, you know, them just just going for it and saying, you know what, the value is what the value is. Um, And so I think a lot of the questions I get asked are, will you listen to this and tell me if I've got something here? I mean, do you think and people are I, looking to see if whether or not you believe they're interesting? Is that what I'm hearing? I Yeah. And, and, and I, I've always said, you know, since the beginning of, uh, of, well, the beginning of my life, actually, is I've always believed that the most interesting people are the most interested in whatever. Meaning, like, if you think about the people you run into day to day, we can all probably think of two or three people that we just find absolutely boring. Like, oh, there's Brian again. I don't want to get wrapped up in a conversation with him. (laughs) And the reason is because when you think of these people, you know, you, you sit there and you, and you don't know what they're about. You don't know what they're into. I don't care if it's Mary, the lady with nine cats, if that's what she wants to talk about, and she can tell me, you know, feline behaviors, blah, 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 blah. It may not be the content that I'm interested in learning, but I'm still find her interesting because you, you have to go, wow, how does Mary love cats so much? Like she's really into it and that's cool. And so I believe that the most interesting people are the most interested in something. And I think that's true with, the, the ideas that get thrown past me. If somebody comes to me and they said, you know, 
I've been looking into this for years. This concept of of uh, whatever it may be. That's when you sit there and you go, yeah, this is something you pers- you should pursue. If the opposite is true to where somebody says, okay, I had an idea once. I didn't really look into it. Or I had a situation in my life happen once. I haven't really looked at how it impacted me, but it's got a lot of sizzle. Um, can I turn it into a, a New York Times bestseller, Todd? No, you can't. Because you're not interested enough in that story. You're not engaged enough to where you're going to make something real. Uh, you're, or you're going to you're going to create a, an article or a product or a book or whatever, and then you're going to chase it because that, that story or that curriculum or that philosophy really means something to you. I mean, it's like the stuff you talk about, you know, with purpose, Brian, it's, it's meaningful to you. Um, and, and you chase it and it's not just a, you know, a, a capsule to, to say something else. It is what it is, and, and you're into it, and you would have conversations day in and day out for hours with people, you know, about purpose. It, it's meaningful. So um, I don't know if I even answered your question. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think you did. I think you did, and added a little additional uh, context as well. So, you know, from uh, – so let's talk about stories. Um, uh and I want to relate it to uh, the resume, something that's okay. something that's been uh, uh, <laughs> essentially the storytelling document that every individual uses when they are applying or interviewing for uh, a new role, a, a new step in their career. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I. Th- I at least my belief is, is that a resume, while important and, and a documentation of career accomplishments, does a relatively lousy job at telling the story <laughs> of an individual. Agree or disagree? It's a horrible job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I, I know you and I agree, agree, agree on this too. And, and the resume, it, it, from a format standpoint is in today's world, we, and we've talked about this before, Brian, that we talked about where the resume came from and, and it's, it's, it's actually not that old, right? Do I remember this correctly? Well, so the, the origin uh, can be traced back to the late 1400s uh, and believe it or okay. not, Leonardo da Vinci uh, wrote up, uh, what is now essentially the modern day resume? Uh, he was pitching uh, his services to the Duke of Milan, if my memory serves, in like 1482. Uh, at why uh, trying to convince the Duke as to why the Duke should hire him for some of his uh, Da Vinci's uh, defense uh, building and and overall wartime. Uh, skills, if you will, to build better moats and better walls and things like that. Yet, if you look at what da Vinci wrote, um, other than it being in Latin and being, uh, you know, not the, not the most professional looking document, but, you know, by those standards, I'm sure it was, today's resume doesn't look all that different. <laughs> you know, I, see, here's for the listener right now. Think about the difference in the way you perceive the resume because Brian just told the story of the resume. Um, and, I, and I think this actually goes right into the, into the point of both of us saying the resume is broken because it doesn't communicate the story. It, what, what you just said, Brian, gives flavor to the resume, even though it, I think the resume in today's world doesn't work, but you just, you just framed it. You just said, here's, here's the founding story of the resume. When I say things like founding story, I think this is where you were going um, with your questioning earlier. You know, when we talk about sending our resumes and communicating who we are to companies, what happens a lot of the time, and, and by the way, I believe resumes and cover letters probably are the 
probably the the most um, storytelling that the average individual has to do within their career. Would you agree? Uh, I, I mean, would, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in most jobs that don't require storytelling or what have you, it's that one time. It's when you're looking for a new job um, that you have to tell a story. And ironically, what you're saying is the format doesn't work, especially in today's um, high tech, you know, world where there are filters built in and there there are all these mechanisms built in to where it's like, how do I get the chance to tell my story? Um, well, and the thing that's so interesting about it, too, is in a world where, <clears throat> at least in business, that culture and values and and mm-hmm. purpose and the, the alignment of the, the more human aspects of our day-to-day lives, not so much our skill, not so much our abilities, not so much our, our particular field of expertise and what it is we're very good at. It's the people we spend mm-hmm. our time with. It's the environment that's been created. It's the ways we behave. All of those intangibles that you know the the resume does a very very poor job at communicating. And so I think we're missing the essence of how how we're connecting uh, human to human using the resume as the main storytelling document for individuals when companies are looking to add people to the team. Well, it's what you're saying is fascinating too, because you know companies are becoming more aware of the, of the impact of their culture, and they're be, and they're becoming more aware of their employment brand, meaning what it feels like and smells like, and 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 all that to work there. And companies are are, are getting great at that. However, then they put out their recruitment ads or what have you. And they still request a document that doesn't ask for a response to to who they are. Right. They're asking still for a document that's old and out, and outdated and doesn't tell a story. And I think I think that's a fascinating thing because um, it, 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 it it happens over and over and over and over and over on a daily basis. And we're wondering why there's a disconnect and why companies are struggling to find the right people. It's because they're asking for the wrong information. And, and you and I, I think, would agree on this. It, it's not that skills and experiences don't need to be included, but when, when companies are looking for people, they what they're really looking for is how to filter down to get to that story of one person who's done X, Y, Z, and because of that, their story is makes them the best person for the job because their story is their purpose, like like you talk about. Their story encompasses their values. Their story encompasses their their future, where they want to go, um, because you can see by their past these these things that have led them, in, you know, in the in, in the right or wrong direction. Wrong direction works too. I mean, it's you know, I can tell a story about me quitting a job because I didn't want to, you know, ride a bus. But that tells a lot about who I am and 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 where I'm going. Well, and it's interesting too if you use back to where we started in Freitag's pyramid. Could the career story of an individual be better told using? a storytelling framework, or in this case, using the, the Freitag's pyramid, whether it's that or whether it's the, the hero's journey by Campbell or some other way for individuals and companies to be connecting with one another, uh, and specifically the individual, the candidate, uh, the job seeker, call that person what you want to call them, um, should they be telling their story in a way that is far more aligned to clearly where business is emphasizing today, which is the alignment of the intangible elements. Yeah, you've got to be able to do the job. However, mm-hmm. if you can do the job and you're an asshole because you don't actually fit into the environment <laughs> the company's created, you're not going to make it very long. And those things should be able to be uh, screened out in a different way than just using the, the resume. 
Well, yeah, and, and, and you're right. In Freytag's pyramid, you know, that, that rising action and the climax and the falling action and the happier or sadder or whatever, wherever you end up after, you know, you find resolve is a great framework. And, and if you look up Freytag, it's F-R-E-Y tag, F-R-E-Y-T-A-G, Freytag's pyramid, it's, it looks like a really dumb, Gustav? dumb model. Did you say his first name was Gustav? Gustav. Okay, yeah. cool. Just wanted to make sure. Um, if, if you look at the model, you think, how can this be something? This is too simple. But I guarantee you, every time you communicate where people say, tell me about the last, last place you were. Tell me about a situation you overcame. Tell me about a, a great success. You will think about Freytag's pyramid and say, you know what? Here's where I started. Here was the challenge. Here was the climax. Here was the, and then the, and then what, what, what became of this? I ended up in a higher position, but I think too, that what you're talking about, Brian, I've looked at this in four ways because people often, when you go back to the questions people ask me about telling their own story, especially is a lot of times they're looking for, well, what aspect am I looking for? And I don't care whether you're an individual, you know, creating a resume or a company trying to recruit people or a company trying to communicate purpose. I mean, you run into this all the time where it's like, okay, we, we understand this thing called purpose. How do we continually communicate it to our people? It could be your company's values. It could be a bunch of different things, but I, I basically have found four different types of stories that can be told from by the individual, by the organization, by the team, what have you, that communicate whatever it is you want to communicate very well. Um, and you brought it, we, when we talked about the, the founding of the, I don't know if founding is the right word, but the creation of the resume. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so to companies, I say, what's your founding story? And it's not just the details. In 1912, Brian rode his horse across the desert to found da, 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 da. It's not that. A company's founding story is, is about the why. It's, it, it's a deeper connection to the purpose and, and why you exist. Um, you know, the research by the O.C. Tanner Institute has actually looked at pride in the corporate symbol. And, um, and, it, and it's one of the three top components of driving employee engagement um, when you look at that founding story. And so you can look at founding story of the resume to the founding story of, of your organization. You know, um, you could look at the founding story of, of Y Scouts and, and where you and, and Max started first having those conversations of going, let's look into this and let's see what's going on here. Um, the second story is, are the pivotal stories. And pivotal stories are, are, are the ones that, that, uh, there was the challenge. These are, these are the Hollywood stories that, that we often talk about that change people or organizations or cultures or what have you. Um, there's a, there's a story that I love. Um, it, it was in 1859, a train crashed near Johnson Creek, Wisconsin. 14 people were killed on that train. Two of the victims had recently become policyholders of a little insurance company named Northwestern Mutual, which we all know is, is huge right now. Yeah. Claims for the accident totaled 3,500 bucks for 14 people. Sadly, the company only had two grand. This is a pivotal story where company leaders had to say, okay, we can either go out of business because our company is only worth 3,500 bucks. Oh, actually the company was only worth two grand, but we have to pay out 3,500. So we can either go out of business or you know what? If we're in this, we're in this. This is a pivotal story. This is, you know, live or die. Close the doors or move forward. And obviously, if you're familiar with Northwestern Mutual, they're huge today. But those kinds of stories, think about communicating that story 
to the people of the company. What does that mean? No, we're here for the policyholders. We're, we're here for you. Even if it breaks us, we're going to do the right thing by you. Um, you know, pivotal stories are, are great because they expose the thinking that overcame, uh, overcomes a situation. You know, for an individual and a resume, these are questions that get asked during interviews. When are you faced with a situation? Yeah. And I think a lot of times, you know, um, people that are in interviews and answering questions are, they're looking for that, that big sizzle story. And, and oftentimes they, they need to hold back and say, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to relate to how much money I created for the organization or bring it back to character. Something that, that forced you to go, you know what? I could do this, but you know what? That it's show character in your pivotal story. I think that's, you know, from a resume standpoint, um, going to relate better to, to, uh, the outcome. In fact, my, one of my daughters was, was just filling out an application for, for, uh, honor society. And, and she was going through and she was, the, the honor society had asked, um, about the awards and, and whatnot as they relate to her character. And what they're asking for are standardized awards, things that some bigger organization hands a kid for doing X, Y, and Z. And, and, and I, she looked at me and she said, why, why do you look frustrated as she was reading this resume to me or this thing she had to fill out? And I said, I'm frustrated because there's so much character that happens outside of standardized criteria that hand out little certificates. Not that those are invaluable. I'm just talking about the day in and day in, day out interactions of human to human, you know, how much of an impact we can all have on one another rather than achieving some certificate. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? I, I had a bunch of those certificates when I was a kid and I, I honestly, I don't remember a single detail about any of them or, and can't come back and say they helped at all. And I think that's where, what we're talking about right now with the resume is credential. Sure. And we always say, does it look good on a resume? Absolutely. It does it actually mean something. Right. So if you can get into that pivotal story and relate it to character, um, also, there's teamwork stories. This is the third version of the story. Um, and I think this is important, whether you're a, a, a company or an employee. If you're a, that employee looking for a new job, how do you work on a team? And this is something that teamwork often gets framed as this kind of generic, like over-talked about concept. You know, just be part of the team. What does that mean? You know, you, you can look back to the um, one of my favorite teamwork stories is, is 1980. Herb Brooks organized a group of, of young men from what is arguably the most impressive teamwork story I've ever heard. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Miracle on Ice. Sure. Um, the U.S. Hockey team, about the 1980 course. U.S. hockey team. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, now, the interesting thing that if you're a hockey fan or not about you know, watch the movie, read about it, because here the U.S. was entering the world's biggest competition. And they could have went and grabbed the world's biggest players because the National Hockey League, that's the, the cream of the crop right there. Yep. But instead they went and grabbed a bunch of college players. So a bunch of college players go into the Olympics, play professionals from from all these other countries and they end up winning and when you look at these college players and it, it's very well detailed in the movie they're all rivals they've grown up playing each other on the ice and in college competing against each other and claiming you know i'm the best but these teamwork stories of how differences come together to make something stronger um, these stories of, 
you know, in, in, in companies, it's the late nights in the garages to come up with the better idea or the, or the, the new version of, of this, that, or the other thing. It's, it's, uh, Edison and the team that, that he brought into, uh, Menlo Park, you know, to, uh, to work on the, the first version of the, the light bulb. Um, these are people from all over the world and, and it's the late nights of saying, Oh, that one didn't work. That one didn't work. What do you got? What am I doing wrong? Um, we've all been part of an awesome team. We've all been part of the lackluster team as well, where people don't get along and you know, it's going to go nowhere and we can feel this right away. But when you have those stories of the team, you know, the, the, 1980 U.S. hockey team. Um, those are great stories to tell if you're an employee and an employer, because they again come back to, you know, what we mean together as a group, our values. And then finally, there there are individual stories, and I think these are, I call these great work stories, because of some of the research we've done at the O.C. Tanner Institute. But these are these are our stories of saying. How do I, how do I, how did I create a difference that somebody loved and was appreciated? How did I create value? Um, and this doesn't, this doesn't mean I, guess what? The, the, the uh, attendance award doesn't count here. Um, you know, it, it, we grew up thinking that from, from school and I'm not saying it's invaluable. Yes. I showed up every day, you know, um, but, but I think often because of the way our, our working world is set up, we get a job description and we're told to come in. And in our early years, you just, you're told to just, Hey, you're hired to do this. I was told once, Todd, we hired you to write. We don't want your ideas. And I'm, <laughs> I remember thinking that's so wrong. Like, why would you tell someone not to share their ideas? Yeah. It's, it's, I don't care what level of employee I am. And then how do I write without ideas? Well, sure. That make sense to me. Well, not to mention <laughs> if that's what you were told, the amount of uh, passion and just zest that you're going to write even their stories with at that time were probably going to be far less than if you felt like you had a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, it was it was crushing to... I mean, well, it instantly crushed, crushed my future with that organization. I was like, well, I'm done here. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Game over. Because game over. Yeah. Uh, done. We don't want to hear your ideas. Um, but these great work stories, these instances where where you've made a difference that was loved, it, we get so tied up again in these these uh, thinking that these things have to be a uh, formal, you know, but if you think back to some of the great work that you've done, if you go back into your life and I, I have this conversation with a lot of people where it's like, I can, I can get your story on paper in the most interesting format that is most detailed and clear about you by bringing you back through your life and looking at moments that you felt most appreciated. And the reason you felt most appreciated was because you had done something that made a difference, a positive difference in someone's life or career. And whoever that person was, they recognized you and communicated their appreciation. And for some reason, that appreciation resonated with you. And it stuck with you and it made you want to not only repeat the work you had done, but improve on it. It made you want to do it again because for whatever reason, this person that was appreciating you meant something to you. Like their appreciation really mattered. Now there are other stories you can think back of in your life and you go, yeah, I was appreciated for this, that, or the other thing, but I don't really care. I, I, I played golf with you before, Brian, and for a guy that doesn't play golf, I, I have a killer drive. 
and I've received appreciation for it every time I play, which is like twice a year. <laughs> and, and honestly, I could care less. I enjoy an occasional game of golf, but it's just not my, it's not my thing right now anyway. I've never really gotten into it. So does appreciation mean anything to me? Hmm, not really. I mean, it, it, appreciation always feels good. Yeah. But you know those situations in your life. And, you know, for a person in their late 30s, uh, in their 40s, they probably have three or four instances that go back to elementary school or middle school or high school or college or first jobs three or four instances that really ring a bell in your mind and go, this is how, and when you look at these stories and you look at the appreciation you uh, received and the, going back to the earlier part of our conversation today about being a writer and a storyteller, and I can go back, Brian, and I can tell you the words of appreciation I received early on in elementary school that meant something to me. And I can go into high school and I can tell you, the words of my teacher, Gerilyn Fortner. Love you, Fortner. You still inspire me today. And she challenged me to break the rules with writing. And I can go into college and I can go into early jobs and I have three or four profound, specific instances and words that came out of people's mouths that inspired me onto my next piece of great work. And so the great work stories when they're in a resume, we often look and say, well, we achieved this. And instead of thinking about the achievement, think about the difference you made for somebody or some organization or some team or some whomever where they came back to you. Because those are the stories that really matter in the path of your career and life moving forward. Those are the things you chase by nature. They're, they're, they're built in you. Well, and it, they're it beg, part of you. Yeah, and it begs the question when, you know, thinking about a resume for those of our listeners who might be contemplating making a career move, that as part of, you know, what has become the, the, the standard resume format, at least within each step throughout your career, dedicating mm -hmm. a section of each of those roles or, or uh, steps along the way to focusing on, well, what difference did you make that people fell in love with through the opportunity or the impact that you had along each career stop? Do something different. Mm -hmm. Tell a story um, of, of a difference that you made uh, that had a big impact on somebody or to use your words that made a difference people fell in love with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the, that's the other thing about, you know, when we're talking about resumes and storytelling, um, I, I joke about this now, you know, years after, years and years and years after, but um, I reached a point in my career, my wife and I were hopping all, all, all over the country. Um, and um, when we were younger and, and just moving from town to town and she was working in television and, and which required us to move as she moved up the ladder um, from market size to market size. But every, every town I would, I would land in, I would start to go, okay, I'm in a, I'm in a bigger playing field right now, which means I have bigger competition. And I would start to look at the fact that I was going from, let's say I was working, I spent years working in advertising agencies, telling, you know, branding stories um, in my young career. And as I moved up in markets, I would start to realize that I was being judged on the clients that I could brag about. And so if you're coming from an Idaho falls, Idaho and talking about the clients there, it's a hard, it, you have a hard time competing with the clients, you know, from a Phoenix, Arizona, which is a bigger market which you have a harder time com coming from a Phoenix to a New York to a whatever, to a global perspective, to a Coca-Cola or Ford or whatever at the top, right? And so I realized as I was moving up that I, I can't compete on a credential basis anymore. My educational credentials weren't going to be better or more impressive than the people I was competing with. My client credentials weren't going to be better or more competitive than the people I was competing with. 
all of these things that we put on resumes, my job experience, the companies I had worked for, they're not going to be known even recognizable to against the competitors of people that I was, you know, trying to get a job from. They're not going to know some small agency from the Midwest that I worked for, or what have you. And I thought, and I kept thinking about this going, how do I go into a new marketplace, a new company, a new industry per se, for some people that may be listening to this. And how do I honestly compete? And the only way you can compete are through stories. It's the only way. And, and so what you're saying, Brian, is bring people back to those stories where you made a difference that people love. I actually, Brian, stopped sending resumes at some point as my wife and I were hopping across the country. And the reason I stopped doing it was because I couldn't compete when it came to resumes. My credentials weren't, weren't going to be better. They just weren't. And so instead, I would just reach out and I would send my story and I would pick a snippet in time and I would use Freytag's pyramid to talk about here's where I started, here was the challenge, here was the climax, and here was the result. And it was awesome. And it made a difference that somebody loved. And guess what? It started working. In fact, when you and I met, Brian, the, uh, the company we worked for together 10, 12 years ago, I never sent a resume. I was, I was hired off a letter. And that's it. The story. Well, and if, uh, if my math serves me well, or my memory, I should say, you've been uh, the writer behind, is it 12 uh, best-selling books? New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Amazon best-selling books. Is it 12 or is it, is it more than 12? It, it's 12. It, it's soon to be 13. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I know, I know you and your, your co-authors are working on uh, another book that is due out. Uh, later this year, summer, fall time frame, and uh, we're really uh, super excited about uh, getting my hands on that. Uh, the most recent book, which is what, about a year or two old, The Great Work, How to Make a Difference People Love. How old is that book now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about it's about two. And, and Great Work is a, is a fascinating, fascinating read. Um, the, the research behind the book is absolutely fascinating. I know you've been digging around in there for quite some time, but uh, the OC Tanner Institute looked at one point uh, over a million cases of award-winning work um, because we wanted to know what what are people doing, and you know it's interesting because a lot of times when you say who are the great workers, if I ask you that question, automatically your mind starts looking for personality traits, right? You want to think, wow, well, he's got an A-type personality, or sure. they're they're a real go-getter, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, real go-getter, or what what have you, and we, we kind of thought the same thing was going to happen when we when we started digging through all these detailed cases of award-winning work, um, but what we found was something totally different. It's not who the people are. We found five things people do that actually lead them to great work. And, and, and you know what, I, I should probably just stop right there, but because um, you should really talk to David Sturt. Interview David Sturt about these five things because they're fascinating and the research behind the book is fascinating. But I will go back to this too, is that the one thing shared, the one single thing that's shared by every piece or every story that we dug through to find out what people are doing to achieve award-winning work, mm -hmm. great work, yeah. um, was a shared intention. And the intention was not to find a success, not to that all these things that we think, um, not to, not to advance myself to the next level of my work or get whatever. The one single thing shared was an intention to, make a difference that someone else loves. And I know that sounds simple, but if you think about the greatest things that are achieved, they are, the intention is not for fame or money or what status or whatever. 
it's the intention is looking at one person or one group and saying, how do I improve this to where they're going to love it? If you look back at some of the, some of the great stories that, that I've even had the opportunity to tell, I interviewed the, the founder of Pandora, um, you know, internet radio. Um, and, and you think here was a smart guy who came up with a great idea in the perfect time in history where internet radio would become what it is, you know, it was on the cutting edge. If, if you actually look at his story, he didn't sit back and say, I have a great idea that's going to change the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. He actually read a newspaper article about a songwriter and artist who was struggling find, to find a, the right audience because the music industry is still pretty closed off. And she was like, I'm kind of like this artist and that artist. And so he's reading this article and, and he's a computer programmer and he's thinking, you know what? I can help her. For a woman he didn't even know, he wrote a program that is now Pandora that picks up on our, each individual's, you know, our own likes. We can create our own stations of likes and dislikes and what have you. But the intention was not create a huge product and become wealthy and da 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 and roll off into the sunset and live happily ever after. The intention was, how can I help this one thing, this one woman who I've never even met before, who's struggling to reach her desired audience? It's a fascinating story, but I think it goes back to show the things in your life that you're most proud of. You can go back and your intentions were that clear to make a difference that one person or a group of people loved and you, and you did it and you got your appreciation and you move forward in a bigger and, and better format. Well, I think that is, uh, it's a great story and a great focus for all of our listeners as they're thinking about um, how they're going to continue to further their careers, whether it's where they're at now and continuing to make a difference through their current roles or it's making a move to a different one, but as that central focus. And they probably, we, we, we all know it, um, but sometimes you know, having a conversation like this helps to reinforce that the reason why we should do something isn't for the money or for the fame. It's because it mm -hmm. can make a meaningful difference in the lives of others, or as you put it, make a difference that people will love. I, I think that's great. Todd, I cannot thank you enough for uh, spending so much time with us. This has been absolutely fantastic. I know we covered a lot of ground today. Um, if, if folks want to learn more about you and the work you're doing, uh, what would be the best place for them to, uh, to do that? Um, yeah, I, you know, go to, go to octanner.com, O-C-T-A-N-N-E-R.com. Um, on there, you know, we've got so much content that, that tells great stories that reveals, uh, research that we're conducting daily at the OC Tanner Institute. Um, you can look up great work. Um, you can, you can follow us because our, our, our new book, which also includes some fantastic world-changing, game-changing research um, will be coming out soon, so you can follow us there. Um, you can go to Forbes.com, and, and David Sturt and I, um, uh, we're weekly contributors on, on Forbes.com, and we cover a lot of work-related, um, how to improve your work life or how to improve your, your team or how to improve your organization type content, so you can follow us weekly uh, on Forbes.com. And, uh, and that's it. I mean, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of content. There's, you, you could spend so much time on octanner.com just consuming that, um, you know, you'll never get out of there. And it's a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Todd, thanks a lot, man. Wish you nothing but the best. And I know we'll be chatting again sometime soon. Thank you, sir. All Talk right. Appreciate it. Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, whyscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions you'd like me to send Todd, drop me a line at brian at whyscouts.com and I'll gladly forward them on. 
If you enjoyed Todd's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Megan French Dunbar, co-founder of Conscious Company Magazine, Gerald Shertavian, founder and CEO of Year Up, and Ann Rhodes, former chief people officer at Southwest Airlines and author of Built on Values, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.